The first thing I noticed about Jim Davis when he walked into my office is how tall he is. He was, for two decades, a New York City police officer and homicide detective, but before that, he played professional basketball. Homicide detective in the South Bronx, the seventh homicide, covering the 4-0, the 4-2, the 4-4, and the 4-6 precinct. He walked in carrying a stack of files that had to be a foot thick. His entire file on the 1975 rape and murder of Roberta Fort. This is Crime Scene. I'm Jordan Fenster. Before we get started, a warning. If you're sensitive to violence or language, discretion is advised. When you talk to Davis about the investigation into Roberta Ford's murder, you get the sense that this case is important. If, if we didn't solve this case, this guy would run around and kill some other people. So we had to find him to try and stop him because he would have been a serial killer. Roberta Ford was 21 years old in 1975, an employee of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The food stamp program had been expanding exponentially, reaching 15 million participants in 1974, a decade after President Johnson signed the Food Stamp Act into law. Guard against With devices. that expansion came questions about costs and accountability. And it was Roberta Fort's job to verify that food stamp recipients met national eligibility standards. That's what brought her, on April 16, 1975, to the South Bronx. We were notified of a, a dead female body in an apartment on the top floor, 1372 Grant Avenue, I believe. Now, before we go any further, let's list the evidence Davis and his team had to work with. First, of course, there's Roberta Ford's body itself. And in the back bedroom that had been charred with fire was a nude male, a female white, Laying on the floor, completely nude. Her throat had been slit. There was blood spatter. There, were, there was a big puddle of blood by her neck. There were footprints on the roof. But it was bare footprints. It wasn't, it wasn't sneakers or shoes or anything. It was bare. And there was a pubic hair. When the body was removed, her, she was lay, lying on her coat that was under her body. She, her hands had been tied with her brazier. And on her coat that was lying under her body... They found a pubic hair. There was even a witness, but she wasn't much help. The only person we found that had seen her was a young lady on the north side of the building. I think her name was Lydia Diaz. She was watching a program, 12.15 or 12.30 or thereabouts, and she wanted to see this television program, and she had maybe five minutes. So she ran, she was on the second floor, she ran down, and as she's coming, out of the building, 1275, she sees the deceased coming into the building. Now Lydia runs to the local deli, which is 25 steps away. She grabs a thing of milk, waves it to the cashier because she doesn't want to wait. She wants to catch this program from the beginning, and she runs back into the building, and now she does not see the deceased, but she saw her walking into the building. So now that's the only, that's the last person we could find that saw the deceased. You also need to know a little something about the building itself. It was a single entrance building with a north and a south tower. If you went to the second floor, there was no access from the south to the north tower. 
So the only access points would be the ground floor or the roof. The footprints investigators found were on the roof, leading from the north side of the building to a fire escape on the south side. There were bare footprints leading from the north side to the south side. Now the doors on the roof had no handles and it had a, a latch that you could open from the inside to access the roof only from the inside. You couldn't open it from the outside. Roberta Fort's body was found in a vacant apartment. There had been a fire and some work done to repair the damaged walls. She had been missing for possibly 36, 48 hours, and we didn't know, they didn't know where she was. Now they have her body. The body was discovered by some kids who lived across the hall. The girl that was lived across the hall from the, from the abandoned the, the apartment that had been burned out, what had happened, she had two brothers. They found the dog on the street, a stray dog, and they were going to keep the dog. What better place to keep a dog? Unfortunately, they knew that the door was kept locked. The apartment door was kept locked. But they knew, go up onto the roof, go over to the fire escape, go down one floor, and you, you rent that apartment, you go open the door, we bring the dog in, we got the dog in an apartment, mom doesn't know anything about it, and we're fine. The one day that they had the dog, there's a dead body in the, in the apartment. So Davis catches the call. Usually the first, the detective that catches a homicide, in other words, he's going to be the investigating officer. He's responsible for everything pertaining to that investigation. And he and his partner begin to talk with people in the building. At the same time, the FBI gets involved because Roberta Fort was a federal employee. Evidently, she, the female, had worked for the United States Department of Agriculture, so she was a federal employee. New legislation had just been passed by the government. Anyone that uh, assaults or commits a crime against a federal employee, it would be a federal crime. So the FBI became involved. And while there was some concern that the feds would cut Davis and the NYPD out of the loop, <clears throat> the FBI will treat you like a mushroom, feed you bullshit and keep you in the dark. That didn't happen, though they did take a lot of evidence. The FBI took the door off the hinges. The FBI took the, the handles from the, the sink in the bathroom of the apartment. The FBI scraped walls. They took pieces of this, pieces of that that looked like blood splatter from the hallway up into the, the roof landing. They, they wound up with quite a pile of evidence. Meanwhile, as I said, Davis and his team are canvassing the area. One of the building's residents, one of the kids who found the body, in fact, says she saw some unsavory characters recently. She gave us false, she gave us not false information. She had a very vivid imagination. And she gave us a, 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 the day before she saw four boys coming out of that apartment. And one of them was a short kid and had Shorty written on his sneaker. Nowadays, Davis doesn't think Shorty ever existed. Never found hiding the hair of him. We up and down the side, we up and down the street, because... Mount Eden Avenue, speaking to all the kids there. and It happens sometimes. Eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable for a variety of reasons. Actually, after about three weeks, we finally brought her down to the department psychiatrist. And he interviewed her, and he said she just has a vivid imagination, and you'd have to be a little skeptical of what she may or may not tell you. 
And so we had let it at that. Shorty was just a figment of her imagination. So they're at a dead end. We had a few other misleads. Uh, some lady thought she saw two people following behind her, and she gave us a description. We actually had composite sketches made up, never found those people. They lost weeks looking for a suspect that probably never existed. And they start going through their files, looking for anything, something they might have missed before. And they found it. The FBI had tested that pubic hair they found under Roberta Fort's body. They determined it was of mongoloid origin, a now archaic term that meant a person of Asian or Native American descent. Davis didn't think much of it at first. This was before the days of DNA testing, remember? And Shorty was a solid lead, they thought. But as it turned out, among the hundreds of people within a two-block radius the police had interviewed, a man named Sunset Bay Jr. came to mind. A Native American. So we started to investigate Sunset Bay Jr. And he was very cooperative, because after a Two or three times, we, we gave him his rights. We, you know, oh, no, no, I know my rights. I know, well, we have to give them to you. You understand them? Oh, yeah, yeah. We got him to give us a sample of his pubic hair, and we sent it to the FBI. The FBI reports back, it's microscopically identical. But that was not enough in 1975. So you have to get more. So I said, we can't get more. He says, then you got to get a confession. So we, we, we went some background and we found Sunset was involved with, I think, some child protection agency. And uh, what he had done is he had killed a cat with a, with a golf club. And that was another part of the story. We went down to, to interview the woman that had the case. And technically, we weren't supposed to see any of the information that's there. It's confidential. And we always carried a picture of Roberta Ford of a that we would show people, and once you see it, everybody says, oh my God, that's terrible. So what she did, she says, look, here's his folder, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a break, I won't be back for 20 minutes. And my partner and I opened this folder and we saw all this information, and sure enough, he had killed a cat and he had some psychological problems. They pick him up and interrogate him for close to seven hours. In the end, he confessed. What had happened, what had transpired that day she evidently went into the building and the person she was supposed to interview was on the north side. She went to the south side. On each floor, she'd knocked on a door and, you know, it was Mary so-and-so. I No, don't know her. You know where she lives? No. Go up to the next floor. No, no, no. All the way up to the top floor. Sunset was home. Don't know her. Maybe she's on the other side. She says, what are you talking about? Well, there's another side of the building. Is there any other way to get to the other side? I'll show you. He comes out of the apartment, goes up to his roof, opens his latch, goes across, takes her across, makes her stand outside that roof door. He goes down the fire escape, into the apartment, opens the door, comes up that side, unlatches. She's standing outside the door. She's in here. Takes her, takes her into the apartment. Now, that's almost the end of the story, but not quite. Sunset pleaded guilty and got 15 years in prison, but seven hours of interrogation and what was then thought of as shaky science made the district attorney nervous. 
The killer is in custody, but an appeal process begins almost immediately. Meanwhile, Detective James Davis got himself into some hot water in a completely unrelated matter. I called him to ask about his perjury conviction. In other words, I stopped, the, I stopped the, what was an undercover that I didn't recognize. I thought he was a homicide suspect, and I asked him for identification. He showed it to me, and I said, you know, that was it. That was the end of the encounter. The claim was that Davis had, for whatever reason, intentionally exposed an undercover officer who had infiltrated the mafia. The prosecutor claimed that I intentionally tried to expose an undercover working undercover in a, in a bar in Manhattan on 19th Street and 2nd Avenue. I was trying to expose him because it was a mob-operated bar in which I didn't know. So they, they, they said the grand jury was meeting to try and expose me as taking, accepting a bribe or a, doing, doing something for the mafia. So that was what the intention of the grand jury was. Grand jury is convened, and during that process, Davis is asked about both the incident itself and how his supervisors handled it. Cully in interrogated me. One of his supervisors. I claimed, Cully said to me, that a guy my size was kicking the shit out of somebody. But the next utterance of mine was, he said I was seen in the area. So I recanted that statement. So that was the basis of my prejudice. In other words, I had lied to the, to the lieutenant and I had lied in front of the grand jury. At that point, Davis left the force. He had bills to pay and a family to feed. The case was dismissed, but the state appealed a year later. Davis won on appeal, but the appeals judges agreed to allow another trial. The appellate court ruled five to nothing. It was a perjury trap. By the way, among those judges was Saul Wachtler now infamous for both being convicted of threatening a lover and her daughter and for his belief that district attorneys have so much influence on grand juries that they could get them to, quote, indict a ham sandwich. So that means that the prosecutor had to seek permission from the Court of Appeals to, to appeal the case. By now, Davis has exhausted all his resources, and he's relying on an inexperienced PBA lawyer. After several years and several trials, Davis is convicted of perjury. $2,500 fine. That was it. Yes, no jail, no probation, no nothing. Then, Sunset Bay's case comes before a jury. By now, it's 1982. Today marks my first State of the Union address to you. A constitutional duty... Of Seven years have gone by since the murder. The defense questioned everything. The interrogation, the confession, the footprints, the pubic hair, which was destroyed after the case was closed for some reason. And they call Davis to the stand and ask him about his perjury conviction. Well, what it, what it is, is it, it's what's called credibility. When you're a convicted perjurer, your credibility for the truthfulness is, is like diminished. You're, you're a convicted perjurer. You've lied before. Will you lie again? But ultimately... It didn't matter. Absolutely not, because he was convicted. Sunset Bay was convicted of the rape and murder of Roberta Ford and was sentenced to 25 years to life. He later died in prison. I think Davis looks back fondly on his time with the NYPD. His son, also named Jim Davis, went into law enforcement. He works with the Rockland County Sheriff's Department. 
If anything, he's surprised at how much things have changed. Today, one pubic hair might have broken the case wide open. I went into the police department in 1959. I got a gun, I got a shield, I got a, a Dave club, I got a billy club, and a flashlight, and a, and a notebook. And that was it. Here, you're a cop. Go fight crime. Special thanks, of course, to Jim Davis for sharing his stories. This is Crime Scene. I'm Jordan Fenster. From the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, this is Unsolved Season 2. I'm Gina Barton. Join me each Wednesday starting August 30th as we explore the unsolved case of Michelle Mander's death. As the minutes and hours tick away, Watertown authorities concede their hopes are diminishing of finding two-and-a-half-year-old Michelle Manders alive and unharmed. I don't like the idea of ever overlooking any possible homicide case. Subscribe on iTunes and other podcast platforms 